Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. I'm trying right now to talk more about this coronavirus crisis because I think it's for sure the biggest test that many of us will ever face. I mean... What better time than to sit at home with a pint of ice cream and a pizza that will arrive piping hot in 30 seconds or less? We can beat this thing. The forced sedentary state, the fear-induced eating, and the apathy. We can beat it by paying attention to guys like Mike Isretel. Mike's company, Renaissance Periodization, has been delivering his powerful ideas to people's phones for years. I cannot recommend them enough, especially at a time when we have such great limitations. Today, I get to talk to Dr. Mike Isretel. Mike has a PhD in sports physiology. He's the chief sports scientist at Renaissance Periodization and is a former professor of exercise and sports science. I just want to say that Mike's TED Talk, The Scientific Landscape of Healthy Eating, is awesome. And I mean it has changed the way I look at food. You can find Mike on Instagram at RP Dr. Mike. That's at R-P-D-R-M-I-K-E. I just want to warn you ahead of time that Mike and I are pirates and we speak as such. If you have an adverse reaction to foul language, this might not be the episode for you. Dr. Isretel. I don't know anyone by that name. God damn it! They gave me the wrong fucking number, man. I knew it. Is it you? It is you. It is clearly you. I know this voice. It is clearly me. (laughs) I really want to start out by saying thank you. You made a big change in my life. I don't know, knowingly or unknowingly. I had done 
keto for a long time and lost weight and, and was thinking I was successful, but I was having this issue that I kept looking in the mirror and seeing my body look pretty much the same, just smaller. Mm -hmm. And I started down this kind of hole of like searching out what the problem was. And I came across your Ted talk, the scientific landscape of healthy eating. I like that you went straight to YouTube for your, you know, biggest problems. You're like, there's got to be a video about this. Yeah. Well, Google <laughs> led me to you. I typed in, I'm not retaining enough muscle on keto. Where do I go? And Google said, watch this YouTube video. Oh, man. And it was you. You know, having grown up in Los Angeles, I've been the effect of every health craze that has ever existed in the last 40 years. And oh, yeah. And, you know, it goes from uh, this type of vegetable is bad, this type of fat is bad, too much salt is bad, too much sugar is bad. And, and watching your video, it kind of just chilled me out and was like, you know, I, I, I know there are certain people with actual allergies that can have reactions to stuff like gluten. And, and you know, I have a kid who was blood tested and told she has a uh, an allergy to eggs, so she doesn't eat eggs. But kind of outside of that, we're buying these magic ideas or ideas that are magic pills or magic bullets or whatever you want to call them to kind of like put all the onus of blame on one thing or one category or one food group so that if we just get that out of our life, we'll be okay. And yeah. you basically dispelled me of that. Well, I, I'd say it's my pleasure. I suppose I just, I didn't uh, intend on doing that, but uh, I guess I did because hopefully, you know, the reason I did that talk was to change some minds. And I'm, I'm really glad that um, it had a positive effect for you, man. I will say that a lot of the YouTube commentators have had different impressions of the video. Like I'm a shill for big vegan or a shill for carnivore or a shill for big dairy or just a shill in general. My God. Right. And I, I couldn't have taken more of an opposing viewpoint on what you said because you seem to be a shill for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> big science. <laughs> you seem to be advocate. Yeah. But there was no like you didn't present it in a way of the only thing you said is as long as 10 percent. The only thing that I took away, which was like the fundamental of this is you got to get at least 10 percent of your calories from these three things. Mm -hmm. And outside of that, you've pretty much got room to dance around. And even on, you know, even on keto, I think they're allowing up to 10% in carbs. Yep, absolutely. You can stay in ketosis uh, with up to 10% carbs. And honestly, like if you had to cut your carbs much lower than that, like good God, like a bunch of foods of like nuts would be out, you know, like keto would be miserable. You might as well go carnivore at that point. Right. So I watched that and, and then I, I got your book, your diet book, which I think is fantastic. I, I think I at first also was like, well, I'm going from high fat to low fat and, and went to basically no fat mm -hmm. um, other than the, the, the scant amount in a, a boneless, skinless chicken breast. And so didn't feel well and then started supplementing with fish oil and then started going like, I'm being too strict on this, actually. A little bit of fat is okay. Mm -hmm. And have found this zone where I continue to lose weight, albeit slowly, but I'm not losing muscle. And I actually see a difference in my body, which is kind of what I was waiting to see while going to the gym and doing keto. So you were weight training and doing keto at the same time. Yeah. And my energy has been a lot better do, doing this low fat diet, just counting macros. 
I've been able to stay in the gym longer. I've been able to do more in the gym. Another thing I want to ask you about is progressive overload on a cut. Maybe you could talk about progressive overload for anyone who doesn't understand the concept of that. Sure. Would you like me to start now? Yes, please. (laughs) So essentially progressive overload and training uh, comes down to the fact that your body tends to adapt to any training you give it after a long enough of a time. Once your body adapts to that training, it doesn't really respond anymore. Your gains from any given session start to just become unimpressive. So the way to challenge that or the way to solve that problem fundamentally is to present an ever more difficult challenge to your body. And that's the progressive component of overload. So training has to be two things. One, it has to be hard. Like it fundamentally has to challenge you. If you're training and you're like, man, these are super easy workouts and you're probably not growing any muscle, right? Almost certainly not. And then, so training has to be tough to begin with. And for the progression component, because your body adapts over time, the training has to get tougher over time, just by a little bit tougher and tougher and tougher and tougher. Now, when you look at that in the context of a fat loss diet, you have this huge missing element, which is enough calories to really recover and adapt to your fullest potential. And as a matter of fact, when you subtract those calories, which you have to do in order to lose fat, especially lots of fat, you end up really muting, reducing the ability of adaptation you can go through. So what that means is that maybe you used to put five pounds on the bar every other week and get the same reps back when you were gaining weight or maintaining it. You were getting stronger pretty fast. You were getting more muscular, so on and so forth. On a fat loss plan, the number one thing you want to make sure to do is try your best not to regress So even if you can't add any weight to the bar and your reps are roughly the same week to week to week, after three months of a fat loss phase, if you're about the same strength as you were, that very likely means you didn't lose any muscle. And because you lost a bunch of weight, that means almost everything was fat. That's wonderful. Then if you do a maintenance phase or even a slow massing phase where you gain a little bit of weight, you can get new strength. Your body's super sensitive to getting stronger. You make gains, you make gains, you make gains. And then when it's time to do your next fat loss phase again, you sort of continue to try to make gains, but you accept the idea that there might not be a whole lot of gains to go around. And actually, one of the ways in which this happens, it's super simple. You use what's, which is basically called reps and reserve method, uh, or you could also call those related concepts as RP, rating of perceived exertion. Basically, If you are within three reps shy of muscular failure, like unable to get another good rep with good technique, you're doing a real good job at stimulating muscle growth. So what you want to do is make sure your sets on average in a a couple months phase of of muscle growth training, you want to make sure that they're like around two reps in reserve. Like you can totally go to failure all the time if you want. That's just fine. You can go as far as three reps from failure and you get really great results just fine. Let's say an average of two. Let's say we just keep it super simple example and say two reps from failure is what I want. So and let's say you're doing uh, sets of 10 in the leg press. Super, super simple example. And it doesn't really get much more complicated than this. Week one, you do 300 pounds for sets of 10. No problem. About two reps uh, left in the tank on each one of those sets. Great. Week two, you know, you probably got stronger. And you might have gained a little bit of muscle, and especially you got stronger nervous system-wise. So if you do 300 pounds and your goal is to hit sets of 10 at two reps in reserve, you might get there and you hit sets of 12 with two reps in reserve. You're like, gee, you know, okay, well, my goal is sets of 10. I better get the weight up on this exercise next time. So you come back and you add 10 pounds. You say 310 pounds. 
Then you again hit sets of 12, again at two reps in reserve. And like, oh my God, I'm getting so strong. I'm not even able to go back to sets of 10. I'm going to go to 330 pounds next week. And then you go to 330, two reps in reserve, all the sets, sets of 10. Awesome. So as your body gets stronger, you feed it more weight or more reps in order to challenge it the same way again, in order to get it close to two reps from failure again, which means it's a super, super challenge. So the challenge, the overload is from how close to failure you get. The progression is how much weight or reps you need to do in order to get there. It's a self-solving problem because when you're gaining weight or when you're maintaining weight, your body gets stronger week to week to week or doesn't get you know weaker as easily, and you can add more weight and more reps because basically if you don't, you'll just start getting crazy reps or you're getting really, really far away from failure and your sets will be too easy. But when you're in a fat loss phase, you know you come in that next day, the next week, and you're like, okay, I did 300 pounds of leg press last time for since the 10, two reps in reserve, but gee, you know, I'm really struggling. It's just not a lot of calories. Let's try 305 pounds. And you get it for sets of 10, but like one rep in reserve. Like, holy crap, that was hard. Next week, I know I'm not going to make a huge adaptation. So I'm going to try 305 pounds again, see if I can get sets of 10 again, but maybe two reps in reserve. You try it, it works, awesome. Repeat that for a couple of weeks. So now on a fat loss phase, you might have gone from 300 for sets of 10 of the leg press in the first week. And then the week before you deload, let's say in week five, before you take a little break, you might be at 315 pounds for sets of 10, right? But if you were in a muscle gain phase, like you were gaining weight, you might have gone from 300 to 340 in the same amount of time. So just by adjusting to training hard every single session and adding enough weight to the bar or enough reps to meet those challenges, your body's going to tell you how much is too much, how much is not enough. Amazing. And and just so that so that I understand and anybody who is listening, can we talk about failure when you say uh, reps in reserve would be you've done every good rep you can and you can't do another one. But does that mean like you, you get it down and you cannot push it up or would it what is failure? Failure is when you have all these big dreams for yourself, but you just never amount to anything. Yes. So that's me in the gym every day. My life. <laughs> that's me in my life every day. So, okay, on a serious note, failure. There's, there's a good way to define failure and a bad way to define failure. The, the, which one you want first, the good way or the bad way? Well, I, I want to I wanna just paint a picture for you. I tend to use the bench press on my own. So I am very careful that I'm never going to failure. Sure. I want it to be hard. I want it to be heavy, but I'm because I'm there alone and I don't want to be that guy in the gym who can't get the bar yes. up. I'm never going to failure every now and again, I will have that last rep get hinky and not be perfect form. And there, I think I'm at failure though. I can mm -hmm. get it up. Is that true? Yeah. So it, more or less. So basically in uh, in scientific literature, we actually use two almost identical concepts, but they're super, super nitpicky. Uh, one is zero reps in reserve, and that's what you're talking about. Zero reps in a reserve means you have you cannot do another single good repetition by yourself. Right. Right. So when you're, you know, that lockout on the bench you're talking about, where you rack it and you're like, whoo, thank God I racked it then, because I would have been dead if I tried another one. Yeah. That's zero reps in reserve. Now that's not technically failure. Because failure means you need to try to get it up and it doesn't work halfway or some way through the movement, it falls back on you. Okay. The difference between failure and zero reps in reserve, as far as the muscles and them growing and adding fatigue, is basically nothing, right? It's like a half a quarter rep away. It's not a big deal. But for safety, it's a big deal. And especially if you're bench pressing or squatting by yourself, gee, man, even zero reps in reserve is a little bit of playing with fire. 
Um, one rep in reserve accomplishes tons of really great growth, especially in those compound movements, but doesn't require you to like, you know, sort of thank God after that rep that you didn't just shit the bed and then, you know, it's all downhill. Right. And since, I mean, since the whole idea is being able to do something like this multiple times a week or even every day, maybe not the same movements, but you, the whole point is that you're doing something and you're going to do it better the next day. The way you're talking about this, if if it's just as beneficial, it also sounds a hell of a lot safer than going to the point of failure. Totally. There is one caveat, which is people who are not used to training, mm-hmm. uh, beginners, are really pretty bad at estimating how far from failure they are. There was at least one sort of seminal study that was done in which some people, these are legit human beings, they tested in the lab. When they asked them to say to the researcher while they were lifting that, hey, I have like two reps left, they started counting how many reps left, and the researcher started yelling them, motivating them, and everyone was there to spot, ready to take the bar from them when they failed. At least a few people got 10 more reps after that. Oh, like, wow. that's crazy, right? And those people should just be shamed right out of any gym. I'm just kidding. But, um, you know, with beginners, the good news is they don't have to even get remotely close to failure to see great results. For intermediate folks, advanced folks, folks like yourself that have been lifting for a while, I think it's uh, important to occasionally reach true failure on safe exercises where it's all right, just to make sure you're not... Uh, is it okay if I swear a little bit? Or yeah, yeah, no, or? please, all you want. I, I thought this was a family podcast. I can't even blame them on. Yes, but the so, it's a family of pirates. <laughs> Excellent. So, you know, every now and again, as an intermediate lifter, and especially as advanced, you should be going to failure on occasion so that you know you're not shitting yourself, right? Like you could be like, oh man, I'm training two reps in reserve. And then a training partner comes in that you never see and they train with you. And all of a sudden you're like doubling your reps. You're like, man, I was fucking lying to myself because apparently I was just not training as hard as I thought. So yes, ideally it's good to train with an average of two reps in reserve, sometimes less, sometimes more, but I think everyone should, uh, over the beginner stage, intermediates and advanced should relatively regularly approach truth daily just to make sure that they're on the right track. Right. And having that idea that if you're, if you're new to weight training and it can be hard to gauge, like, but you know, I certainly didn't go into a gym knowing what I could do. Is there any suggestion you have for for people? Should they be going to failure just to know what they can do? Definitely not beginners, and here's why. Beginners don't have a very good technical base established yet. Their technique on the lifts, for lack of a better term, sucks. And if it doesn't suck, if even if it's decent, it's been shown that when beginners try really hard, their technique starts to break down. You've seen that shit before, like the survival bench press where you're humping the air at the same time and your yeah. legs are dancing around. Like, I don't really sure what that is anymore. Um, so you don't want beginners to try that hard that their technique breaks down. It's slight risk of injury. And also, um, they're probably going to be learning crappy technique at that point. So it's nothing you want to encourage. What I would encourage beginners to do is, number one, focus on technical mastery. Like, you want to be the person in the gym doing really good technique on exercises, controlled, full range of motion. You got to plan for where the bar is going to go. It doesn't just go willy-nilly. There's no ego. That's number one, because that's going to build, get you, first of all, great results. And second of all, build a really, really good base for when you're more advanced, stronger. And if you have really bad technique when you're stronger, really putting yourself at a high risk of injury then. So techniques, number one for beginners. And then the cool thing is beginners adapt so fast, right? They may gain so fast. Just make sure as a beginner that when the uh, training feels pretty easy, add more reps, add more weight, 
or do more sets or constrain your rest times, make it harder. And if you just follow that road to slightly harder and slightly harder and slightly harder, eventually two things are going to happen. One, you're going to be training pretty hard. And two, you're going to be an intermediate and you're going to know way more about your body and you're not going to be confused about what's hard and what's not. Like what you don't want is someone benches 100 pounds on their first day of training for set of 10 and then a year later are still benching 100 pounds for sets of 10. And they're like, well, you know, it's been, it's so much easier now. Like, you know, people ask, I'm sure people have asked you this, like, well, the training, it gets easier as you do it, right? Like over the months, you're like, no, it gets harder and, or at least stays just as hard, but now I can do more. Right. You know what I mean? So you got to just keep that mind, keep that thought in people's heads of like, you are in the gym to challenge yourself. As long as you feel you're being challenged, good to go. And that means you should regularly, not all the time, be adding weight and reps to the bar, maybe a few sets, maybe constraining rest times. If you get to the gym at any point, you're like, man, these workouts are easy. Gee, you know, maybe you mistook what a gym is for. The gym is for challenge. If you're not being challenged, you could be at home rolling blunts or whatever you you derelicts do in California. <laughs> not me, but uh, yes, that's what they do. Um, <laughs> and they go and they roll blunts and then they pop sliced turkey in their mouth as they're munchy. Excellent. In the in the parking lot of the gym, and they're all swigging <laughs> on protein shakes. Um, I think those that's that's really wise. When I used to ride bicycles, they would say it never gets easier. You just go faster. And I think that's yes. the same principle. Exactly the same thing. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. I have so many periods of my life that I have in mind. There was a point in time where I was eating whatever I wanted. I weighed 150 pounds more than I weighed. The good life. Yeah. And I was lifting weights every day. I just didn't care about anything. And I was a lot stronger than I am now. But I do truly regret that I didn't start the diet I'm on now at that weight because I would be bigger than Arnold Schwarzenegger had I just lost fat from that point. So I do miss those whatever, however many pounds of muscle I killed off. Will you talk a little bit about muscle for fat loss. I go back and forth about thinking how to talk about this because ultimately I think, um, you know, this is, this is not a show about bodybuilding. This is more a show about weight loss. However, I do know that muscle uses calories, but I'm, I'm loath kind of to say like, you can eat more, you know what I mean? Because maybe the whole point is that we're supposed to be just more super responsible for what we eat. But I also think that the idea of retaining muscle, it, it, it makes your body function more than the idea of consuming all the muscle that you have. And I just want to get a more sciencey perspective on that. Sure. Well, the good news is a sciencey perspective is actually rather straightforward. Uh, added muscle, you know, per pound or whatever muscle versus fat, it burns like a very small number of extra calories. So the, you'll be able to eat more if you're more muscular instead of just skinny. Like it's true as far as far as it goes, but it just doesn't nearly go far enough to make any relevant point. Like you barely notice the calories. Okay, good. However, muscle has a couple of really, really awesome advantages. First of all, if you have lots of muscle on your body, it essentially works like a glucose sponge. Muscle is anti-diabetic. Oh, wow. Like if you're really jacked, it just eats a bunch of stuff that comes into the bloodstream and you end up being metabolically healthier. Like I have like chronic hypoglycemia all the time, more or less if I don't eat consistently because I have very large muscles and they just eat whatever the hell comes into my body. Right. So 
that's a really, really super good thing, especially for folks who have had a history of being over fat and overweight and their, you know, glucose sensitivities, not amazing and so on and so forth, right? Gaining muscle is a really, really awesome thing for those folks. Second point is if you have gained muscle, your functioning ability is like 50 times better, right? You're actually strong. You're fast. You're endurant. You can do regular stuff like no number of grocery bags is too many for you. Um, and especially, you know, as folks get older, if you continue to have a high level of muscle mass for your age, you just straight up don't see the kind of decrements in age with performance and moving around that other people do. Like if you're a strong, if you're stronger than you were in your twenties, when you were in your fifties, which is totally possible, by the way, you'll straight up feel for all intents and purposes, moving around day to day, just about as good as you did when you were in your twenties. And a lot of people, once they hit their thirties, forties, fifties, they think, oh man, you know, that typical, I don't want to call an excuse. Sometimes it is. It's like, oh, I'm not in my twenties anymore. Like, yeah, you sure as hell aren't <laughs> looking at your body. I could tell it could have told you that. Right. But if you're have muscle, then like, you know, then it's your ability to function is super awesome. I used to, I trained in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and he used to train against a guy who was a former bodybuilder and he was he still lifted super jacked and he was in his sixties. He would whoop my ass up and down the mat, and he had a fucking man strength. So like, you know, like yeah. I was like, "What the? How you're six years old? How's this happening?" And I was a competitive powerlifter at the time, and he had just so much technique and so much strength. I was like, "Okay, you're old on paper, but you're really not old." And you know, he had right. a good laugh at that. But that was the case. And then, lastly, and this is like super pertinent to the California crowd is if you gain muscle or gain muscle while you're losing fat or do some uh, combination of both, or even if you lose sort of a lot of weight first and then you regain muscle, the end point appearance of that, if you have muscle, is so... I mean, like, I don't want to value judge, right? I'm not remotely into uh, skinny uh, women, for example. Like, my wife is thicker than hell. I love it, right? But, like, you can look skinny and it's totally cool. It's totally fine. But most people like some substance, right? Like it's the difference between being lean. Like, ooh, here's a good example. Jessica Biel, Circa Blade Trinity. Tell me you remember that amazing sure. movie. Yeah. 50 Oscars. It won Oscars for two years straight. No one had ever done that before. <laughs> so like <laughs> they postponed half the Oscars. So uh, Jessica Biel, like she's got delts. She's got biceps. Like she's not a grotesque muscle monster, even by Hollywood standards, but she's stacked up. She looks great. She feels great. So on and so forth. She has shape, right? Whereas if you just lose a bunch of weight and you don't gain any muscle, you end up looking like people aren't really sure if you had a health transformation or maybe you're into the heroin again, or maybe you're like, you know, so, you know, like, are you sick? People can't tell. So a huge benefit of muscle is that it gives you shape. And generally speaking for males and females, Muscle only goes into the places that give you really awesome shape. It's not for everyone, but like probably 90% of people like someone with some shape to them. So as you lose weight, if you gain muscle or do it after, you end up having all these benefits of better metabolism, better glucose clearance, more ability to function in everyday life, and you probably look better too. I will say having gone from my highest weight to my lowest weight, where I was uh, about 50 pounds, 40, 40, 50 pounds lighter than I am now. I was really not happy with how I looked and, mm -hmm. you know, I, I wasn't comfortable and I, and I actually, for the first time in a long time, I, you know, and while I still look at myself with my shirt off and, and, am critical of lots of stuff, it's little stuff. I can, I can recognize the hard work I've put in and I can pat myself on the back for it. And I'm much happier and com more confident with my size now yeah. than I was when I just was going like 
crush myself in an extreme caloric deficit to get as thin as possible. Yeah, I, so I agree, but that's completely subjective to me. But but I also think people did think I was sick and I, I looked at myself <laughs> and I looked sickly, you know, and my skin, sure. there's also that thing, like I wouldn't put this on everyone who's overweight, who has to lose weight. But when you're really big, your skin stretches out, it then yep. grows to this new baseline so that it can still be elastic. And, and it doesn't really shrink it. Um, as far as I know, so having some muscle in there to fill that out is, is also super helpful. It's a, it's a really good aesthetic look. Uh, once you fill out the skin and you have some muscle, it just makes everything look better. And you're probably right. It's that much more of a better look for folks that have the extra skin. Cause like, if you don't have extra skin and you're skinny, congratulations, like you look Hollywood thin, sweet, but like if you have the extra skin and then you fill it out with muscle, it's way, way, way more pleasing of a look for most people. Now, some people might not care. Some people might think otherwise, but take that for what it is. One really quick thing I did want to mention about the benefits of muscle gain that I didn't is um, it's been shown that a higher percentage of very overweight people tend to have a, a more of their muscle fibers as faster twitch fibers. Mm -hmm. So those are the kinds of fibers that have two features. One, they are not very good at endurance activity, which plus being heavy, like when a person tries to lose weight, what's like the number one thing people do? Like lose weight, cardio, treadmill. They show up super overweight to a gym and sweat in a bunch of sweats and look at each other super weird. Right. People who are more likely to be overweight because they have the faster fibers, they're going to suck at cardio. Like faster fibers accumulate lactic acid really fast, which is cardio just burns more. And they don't adapt very well to endurance training. So it's just cardio is always going to suck. On the other hand, they get strong fast. They get really strong and they get really big. So they respond incredibly well to resistance training. So if you are, you know, quite quite a bit over fat, relatively over fat, whatever, there's probably a better chance that if you do weight training, first of all, it'll be something you like because you'll be getting better at it all the time. You know, like it sucks to do something that you suck at. Can you imagine being like, yep, I do cardio all the time. That's it. I hate it. I suck at it, <laughs> but I miserable. still do it because I don't want to be fat, right? Cardio sucks. And But if you are a slower twitch individual, you'll like cardio. Like, I don't know if you've ever been in the zone for running. Like, I straight up never found that zone. I used to do cardio all the fucking time. I don't even know what the zone is. I feel like shit. It feels like shit when you start. It feels like shit in the middle. It feels like shit at the end. Why am I doing this? <laughs> so if you're, if you're over fat and, you know, like considerably overweight, picking up resistance training, and maybe in addition to some cardio, it'll give you great cardio benefit if you lift weights, you know, lift weights faster, so to speak, you know, keep up a good pace, do plenty of reps, but also you'll add muscle because you're probably genetically prone to add muscle. Like in your case, you for sure are because you're fucking jacked, right? And then you'll also just be getting better at this thing that you don't suck at, that you can learn to like. It can be a part of your life because a huge factor in weight loss is like, hey, a lot of people can lose weight, man. A lot of people actually do. I mean, I'm sure you've seen Biggest Loser, like they just starve the fuck out of you and you lose the weight. It's the keeping the weight off and putting the activity and the new diet into a sustainable lifestyle. It's really, really, really tough. And for people who are doing resistance training and they're faster twitch dominant, they can learn to like it a lot. They can learn to progress with it. And then they just never quit because why the fuck would you quit something you're good at and that you really like and it makes you awesome and it makes you healthier? Same thing for you finding the diet that works best for you. You also want to do that with diet where you want to find a diet for people that they don't fucking hate. And they can learn to live with, and then then they're smooth sailing. But it's that, and that's a big problem. Uh, I'm going to stop myself in just a second because I'm getting too ranty. But a big problem with like the Hollywood type of fad bullshit 
is that everyone's got an answer for what's going to lose weight for the next three to six months. Sure. Fucking three cheers, tap yourself on the back. But like, who's got an answer for how to sustain that for a long time and enjoy it? Those are few and far between. Yeah. You made so many good points. I love the rant. Um, and I would, (laughs) I mean, I'm sitting here like just with a huge smile on my face going, yes, yes, say more. Uh, but I want to say to your, to your point about, for me, I wasn't bad at cardio. I was, I've never been able to run at at a a time in my life where I could do a full marathon on an, on an erg rowing machine, ride my bike 150 miles in a day. I went and ran a 5k and like had swollen knees and ankles for two weeks. Like I, I can't run, but I was okay at riding a bike. I wasn't the fastest guy, but I could get on a bike and ride it for eight hours. No problem. Uh, the same feeling that I got riding a bike for eight hours, I can get in a gym in 45 minutes lifting yeah. weights. And so the, the cost of that, as far as time goes, is just, it's, it's incomparable. Y- you know what I mean? And, and I also wind up with a body I'm more comfortable with, ultimately happier at the end of it. Cause I have time to hang out with my wife and kids. I don't, wake up before them, get on my bike and then show up for dinner, which I then don't eat because I'm trying to be as thin as possible. Um, so for me, it's just a better lifestyle altogether. Days that I, I, I have a rest day, like Sunday, it's my least favorite day of the week. I, I never get that feeling. I kind of have to force myself to rest. I never get that good feeling that the gym gives me. But I, I recognize the, the value of that. But um, uh, I, think that, I think that ultimately people finding their own diets and as far as Hollywood goes, I think the big problem with um, this thing where, where somebody tries to say everybody's problem is carbohydrates, obviously some people have a problem, you know, type one diabetics do have a problem with carbohydrates if they don't get insulin. Like that's a real medical issue, but to kind of attach that to everyone, the disservice beyond the fact that it's not sustainable perhaps for everyone for all time is that if it's not the right diet for you and you failed at the, at the only thing there is, or that's been sold to you as the only thing there is, what do you do next? You know, you're left with no alternative. Well, everyone is suffering from X. And if you can't figure out getting your shit together, doing this thing that handles X, then it's hopeless. There's actually a, that's a really good point. There's actually something I've talked about in various lectures that is a compounding of that problem is when you have, and this is one of the reasons why I'm so against fad diets, even though, you know, some people say like, oh, it's okay. They got people involved and they got them losing weight, right? That's a good thing. Yeah, I hear that, but bad diets, because they're unsustainable, sort of automatically self-extinguish after a while, people fall off the wagon, so on and so forth. What ends up happening is that thing you just described where someone fails at a diet and feels like, okay, I can't succeed at this. We could say, well, there could be a solution. Just try another fad diet. But there's a real big problem with that compounding effect. And I have met real people like this. There's, Jesus, there's millions of them where they'll do a fad diet they won't get results or they will, but then they'll regain the weight because they couldn't sustain it. Then they'll go to the next fad diet and the next and the next. How many diets do you have to do as a human being on average until just your logical part of your brain is best guess is like, you know, diets just aren't for us because nothing fucking works. Right. But like 
if it's all garbage in, it's all going to be garbage out. It's like trying to download the wrong file size on your computer in a bunch of different ways, but it's all the wrong file size. You're going to be like, this clearly just doesn't work. And then someone's finally like, watch this. Here's the right file size. It downloads perfectly. You're like, huh? Okay, I didn't know that. I was ready to quit. Well, of course you're ready to quit. You're doing only things that are fucking wrong. So fad diets are really unfortunate in the way that they set people up for failure. And, you know, a lot of people can like one fad diet, they can fail and be like, oh, I suck. And then some new fucking weird like, you know, dildo diet comes out. We just eat dildo shaped things, which is my preferred diet anyway. <laughs> but, um, you know, and they're like, oh, my God, that's for me. And they try it. And then they fail at that one. And then they fail at the other one. And then they fail at the next one. After, man, I don't know, what do you think, three or four of those attempts? A lot of people legit give up on trying to diet because, like, yeah, I'm just not going to be. And they oftentimes they use the same word, like, I'm just not going to be thin, which is already like a sort of a prejudice against like being like a healthy, normal body weight and lifting weights. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Like, well, just, I'm just a bigger person. And you're like, yeah, that might be true, but maybe not 330 pounds bigger. Maybe you're a 220 pounds bigger kind of person. So it's, it sucks. Right. And, and ultimately that's the thing is like, well, it's two things as big as you consume to be and as big as you perform to be like at the end of the day, you know, and I think there are a lot of factors out there, especially in America that people aren't really confronting or even aware of like the, the availability and the accessibility of cheap calories that you kind of can't walk out your front door without being advertised about or literally bump into on the street um and our propensity to want to consume uh right away when we feel hunger rather than what it was programmed somebody said recently to me like the 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 timing of hunger is is we haven't evolved out of the fact that when we're hungry it's a signal to go and find food but when that developed going and finding food could have taken a whole day it literally meant exercise. <laughs> right. So the thing now is like, uh, I'm hungry and down the street, there's uh, $2, uh, 2,000 calories for $2. And I'm just going to do that. And I'm going to drive my car there versus I'm hungry. Oh, I actually have to go work and look around and hunt and like find buried trees that are up on a cliff somewhere. Um, For sure. so I don't think that, that a, a lot of the, just the landscape of the way food is presented to us, um, here and in most Western cultures is, is being taken into account. But at the same time, like if you look at a diet and the diet makes everybody the same, that diet can't be right. Because the last question I would want to ask you to benefit me is how many calories do you eat a day? That doesn't benefit me. It's it's maybe, I don't know what I do with that information other than judge you. People ask me that all the time, hilariously, and you're completely right. It's pointless. <laughs> right. If you're going to eat however many calories I eat, are you going to also do the same exercise as me? Is your body the same weight and composition as mine? Like, there's a lot of factors into that. So yep. when a new diet hits Los Angeles, like there was a diet a few years ago called HCG. Have you heard of this diet? Oh, absolutely. Of course. Where it's like everybody's, eat, if you go on the diet, you're eating 500 calories a day, roughly, maybe it's 600. Everybody eats the same and you take a dose of some hormone that is supposed to like increase testosterone so that when you're in this severe caloric deficit, you're not burning muscle, which is total bullshit. Like if you're that deep in a caloric deficit, you're killing muscle. 
And, oh God, yeah. <laughs> and then and then everybody's just eating the same thing. Like if I do that diet, my buddy Kevin Connolly, who weighs probably less than half what I weigh or around half what I weigh, he does that diet. It just can't. It's just not rational that we would be consuming the same thing to, in order to get you know what i mean yeah people want a very simple one size fits all solution and they can probably have pretty close to it if they do a little bit of thinking but a lot of folks are not interested so much in thinking but more in feeling um and there's a tendency especially in uh certain circles to just kind of do what's hot you know what's the thing right now and in, in many fields that are very serious in which results are expected, that kind of thinking straight up is either laughed out of the room or you get your license taken away or it doesn't occur. For example, can you imagine going to med school and being like, yeah, I'm just here to learn like what's what the trends are, like what's hot? Like, shut up, idiot. Here's 150 years of physiology before your dumbass asks any more questions. You're like, fuck, I have to learn actual shit. Right, electrical engineering. You're like, what's the latest? Like, well, how does the circuit work? You're like, I don't know. Like, what the fuck are you? you won't even be able to contextualize what the latest is. The latest is 150 years of electrical engineering. Like, years you got to learn it. But when people come to diets, you know, uh, they're like, hey, what's the latest? And someone's like, here it is. It's a simple thing. You don't have to learn any basics. And are you likely to reach a correct answer? Uh, you know, in medicine, yes. In electrical engineering, yes. In dieting, no, because <laughs> you're just shooting in the dark. So I think people absolutely were, you're 100% right, we're in an, what's called an obesogenic environment. We have incredibly high standard of living, which means we have a lot of money to spend. Food as a, is related to how much income we have on average progressively gets cheaper every decade. And, you know, it's food company's job to make foods as tasty as possible so that you buy more of them. Like, it's literally their job, and it's not nefarious. There's no mystery about it. Like, they're just trying to, it's like, it's like saying Hollywood's making movies that are too fucking good, and we're spending too many time, too much time watching movies. They're no fucking shit. That's what they're supposed to be doing, right? So... Food companies want you to eat more of their tasty food. And if you are going to go and just buy whatever they sell and just use food sort of like a, I don't want to say drug, but, you know, like you're essentially getting high off of it, um, then it's going to lead down a road that's not going to be excellent for you. So I think at some point, some personal responsibility, kind of like what you did, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, fucking Mr. Hero over here, right? But you fucking woke up and you're like, you know what, I want to fucking learn some shit because something's not working for my body. And then you also know, I mean, look, like you're in the same obesogenic environment we all are, except for some fucking weird, mysterious reason. You don't just like eat Skittles every fucking hour uh, or eat, you know, go to the taco cart down the street and just like tip the whole thing over and eat the fucking guy making the tacos and all the taco materials. Like somehow you're able to resist. And I think that figuring out how people can have patterns of behavior, which are good for them and support a healthy lifestyle is probably a real productive conversation to have, at least for a lot of people, versus being like, well, you know, it's this obesogenic environment. Like, yeah, totally, but that shit's not going anywhere. I mean, unless people plan on making, you know, tasty food illegal, I don't want to live in that fucking world. Fuck that. Yeah, there was a, a, a lot of years, though, that I went kind of white-knuckling my way through it, not even aware of this obesogenic diet, which I've not heard those words before, but they're fantastic. And I probably will steal them from you and just be saying Excellent. them constantly from now on <laughs> because it's so exactly what it is. Um, but there was a moment and, you know, I don't know why this is, but the idea of being red pilled has a political connotation because the other pill is blue. 
although it comes from a movie, The Matrix, and it has nothing to do with politics. So I like the the uh, the analogy or the metaphor of being red pilled, where it's mm-hmm. like, here's a pill that you take and you just continue through life as as it is. And here's a pill you take and you kind of see things differently. It just kind of shifts your perspective. And so after having spent a lot of time just kind of going like, everyone is normal. I'm abnormal. I don't know what it was. Mm. And I think it was through education and, and really reading a lot about food and how the body uses food and all of that kind of stuff where I started looking around going, no, 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 this is all being done in a way that is, if I don't recognize that it's being done this way, then I am effect of it. Then I can't help, but buy into the way that McDonald's advertises and, you know, but if I'm aware of like, here's what my body is genetically programmed to do. Here's how it reacts to food. Here's how my body thinks about food. Here's how food is being presented to me, which is completely at odds with my goals for my body. The recognition of that really is a moment where you go, Oh, I don't have to play that game. Yeah. And uh, I'll tell you this, uh, you don't have to hate that game either because you know your path and you could just stick to it and be okay with other paths. Like for example, a lot of people, when they switch to eating much more healthy and they have their maybe like mini red pill moment, um, a lot of them are like, man, yeah, fast food sucks and junk food's terrible and it's bad. And they start to moralize. Um, that's totally fine. But I think maybe after they give us some more time and to feel things through, a more sustainable, maybe more rational approach is being like, you know, like someone asked me like, Hey, uh, Dr. Mike, what do you think about McDonald's? I mean, like, you know, I think it provides relatively cheap, very tasty food that you can have on occasion. But if you have a lot of it sort of all the time, you gain a lot of weight, you become rather unhealthy and you're going to not like your life. And none of that's like McDonald's is bad. Right. But if someone's like, Hey, are you going to eat McDonald's for your next meal? You could be like, you know, I'm not. I'm going to eat like chicken breast and brown rice and some veggies and fruits because that supports my goals and my direction. And they're like, okay, so McDonald's is bad. You're like, it's not bad. It's just like not for me at the time. I'll, I'll go on a, li- a limb here real quick and make another analogy that's just, you know, of course, predictably stupid for me to make on uh, on a radio show. Um, like, is there anything so wrong with going and like having sex with people consensually? No, sex is beautiful. It's totally fine, right? But like. If you're on your way to work, you're supposed to be going to work and you're like, fuck, I need to get laid. And you hit up a person that you're like, fuck buddy or whatever. And you're like, let's, let's just bang for eight hours. Like, can someone say like, no, you need to reevaluate your life. Sex is bad. Like, no, that's fucking bullshit. It's not bad. But like, there's a time and a place for the shit and a time and a place for McDonald's junk food may in your life be almost never. It could be very rarely. It could be on occasion or it could be often so long as it's meeting the goals you set up for yourself. Like if food, there's not just this concept of like food, just, just food and you eat food and then you don't like there's different kinds of foods. And some of the foods are more sustainable for health, longevity, so on and so forth. And they don't make you rebound hungry and super crazy if you eat just a little bit. And those are the foods that you probably mostly should eat. And then junk food and stuff like that's not bad. It's just not the right tool for the job most of the time. I don't know if any of that makes sense. Oh, a hundred percent. Yes. A hundred percent. And I would never put, I mean, food there there is no moral in food it's a thing um and and it and and a a business whose job is to sell a food is doing their job by selling me the food i'm more i yes i don't think there's any immorality in 
the way it's being done. I actually think it's like that we as a society demanded it and that we got what we we demanded. We got it. And there are kind of, yeah, there's some unintended consequences that people haven't, or, or, or really just, I hadn't ever recognized. I just had never kind of understood like, I'm hungry. I'm going to eat. Now my, my parents or my grandparents are withholding food. So now I'm going to create the habit of sneaking food, which then followed me through life. And, and it led me to even sneaking fast food. And I didn't, I wouldn't go into the store. I would get it at the drive-thru. So nobody would see me and I'd eat it in my car. All of that is on me. These things are just there. If if you, if I could, but what the minute I recognized that, yeah, me and my kid, my kid had never had McDonald's fries. I took her three days ago because I was like, oh, they're the best fries. They're fantastic French fries. We have to go try them. And we just bought a, a bag of fries and we didn't even finish it. We each ate a few fries and that was that there was nothing immoral about that. And I find no problem morally with buying French fries from McDonald's. Sure. It was mostly my point of view, which was I was just sitting around going, I can't do anything about this. And, and the minute I started to become responsible for myself, my, my point of view shifted on it. And I was able to recognize all these things that I could only be in control of when I recognized them. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. There's actually an interesting phenomenon whereby if you make something morally forbidden, there's a sort of a a rebound in not everyone, but a lot of people that makes them want it more. Like there's a trend to wanting the forbidden. If you tell someone like, okay, fast food, junk food, you can't have it. It's terrible. It's bad. It makes you a bad person. Don't eat it. Like a lot of people will be like, okay, and then they'll crave the fuck out of it. But like when you tell them like that, you can have it. It's just not like super great for your goals. You're like, man, that's not the kind of that's not very motivating, you know, like not exactly running to McDonald's because I can even have some if I want. It's just not amazing for my goals. That doesn't, you know, that's not enough temptation for me to go do anything. So like, like you had a couple fries and you're like, man, McDonald's fries are good, but they're not fucking crack, you know, right. like, like, and stop eating them. Uh, and if they're like, you're not supposed to have them and they taste way better than all the other foods you're eating and you're starving yourself all the time. Holy shit, that's a recipe for eating like a bunch of bags of fries. Yeah, and I think that a lot of these fad diets work on principles similar to that where it's exactly. like this thing, like whatever it is, eggplant or bell peppers are, you know, I, a month ago, a buddy of mine was like, oh, you can't eat that. Those have lectins. Even though when I looked, everything <laughs> has lectins. Everything. What? Everything. That, where do people get this? Yeah, well, no, and I've had this fight with my, my wife's, in-laws many times and i've actually done tests on them uh surreptitiously which is probably probably that is immoral but there was a big like <laughs> i was with my wife's sister and we were in china and she was eating a hard-boiled egg now she peeled the egg and ate the egg and then was like oh i know it has msg in it what and i was like how did they get what did they inject the egg prior to boiling it how did they get the and she was like nope i know everything has msg and now i feel (laughs) fluish and so i did a thing where i was like i know that msg is in a lot of food naturally and i know that this whole like quack nutritionist thing of msg is evil is pretty much bullshit and i started putting msg in the food that i cooked for people 
and nobody ever got sick. Nobody That's ever amazing. got a headache or anything. But I, it, it did having, being a kid and being told we don't eat Chinese food anymore because of MSG only if they don't have MSG. Well, I, I was the guy who was like, I want to get a big bucket of this MSG and cut rails of it. you know, like yeah. what's this MSG stuff that sounds fantastic if it makes you sick. Um, and I think many diets do that. I really did believe that carbohydrates were the bane of my existence for a number of years. I didn't eat them at all. And if there was a holiday, uh, where I would, where I would be begged by my family to not be super strict on my diet and I would go, okay, I would, I would feel like crap for the next couple of days, but I, I would actually now attribute that to just binge eating on those. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, and, and the, you know, after reading your book and going like, okay, here's the diet I'm going to set for myself. The, the first day of reintroducing carbohydrates into my diet was maybe one of the scariest days of my life. And I'm sorry to have brought you so much fear through my book. So much fear. And by the way, I gained three pounds that day, which just complicated the the terror oh, that yes. I felt. And then I gained three pounds the next day. And I was like, what the fuck am I doing? I'm undoing all of this hard work. And then I think I gained two pounds the day after that. So I'm up eight pounds in three days. And I just kept going like science says that my muscles are filling with fluid and yeah. that's what this way. And I had to literally talk myself through it, but this is years of having this idea that carbohydrates were making me fat. Um, and that it had nothing to do with calories. It was just the carbohydrate itself. Uh, you know, when I got through the, t the anxious three days, the weight started to come off and I wound up losing a pound in the first week. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. That was like a miraculous thing. And then, you know, over the course of five or six weeks, the 10 pounds that I lost made more of a visual difference in my body than the previous 30 had 
Wow. It was a big deal. That's really cool, man. I figure halfway through that uh, carb up period, you're like this fucking doctor, my kids are told fucking liar. Well, I did. You know, I like, mean, I, I, I had to talk myself into not giving up. It was really, it was terrifying. Cause I, you know, I just was like, am I just believing this now? What do I believe? I don't know what to believe. You know what I mean? Like carbs are bad. Carbs are not bad the way I eat. And I think when, when I really go back and look at any diet that I've done that I've lost weight on, the only common theme is that I was in a calorie deficit. And so I take that and I go like, okay, if I apply it to this, how do I get enough protein? I can't get enough protein on keto. It just, it's, it defeats keto. So I'm going to switch over to the fuel source of carbohydrates versus fat. And in order to keep my calories down, I got to cut something way back. Uh, the kind of folks that tend to, um, respond best to, I don't know if it's our advertising, or whatever, just buy more of our products or whatever. We have like a diet app and all this other stuff to help people diet and train. The kind of people that we seem to get a lot of is people that have tried a bunch of fads, gone through the ringer and just fucking tired of it. And then like back 10 years ago, before they started any fad dieting, they would look at boring ish kind of science measured kind of, well, you know, to eat healthy foods, reduce your calories, exercise. They would look at that and be like, then fuck that. There's no way that that's the answer. I want the fucking juice cleanse 5,000. It's going to get me all these results in a week. Back then they weren't ready for that shit. Yeah. After years, they look at the boring and they're like, man, maybe that was right. <laughs> right. And I don't know. You know, the first diet I I did kind of of my own volition with the intent of uh, to, like, I'm going to change my life. I did a liquid diet, but I was 500. I wouldn't do a liquid diet today, but I was 530 plus pounds. And if I go back to that point, I go, yeah, it was completely fine for me to take off 80 pounds in two months at 530. Sure. Um, but I had a different goal. That was like, I'm dying I need to kickstart this somehow. Um, you know, if I had gone into it at that point going, I'm going to lose a pound a week, it would have been a nine year progression. Now, in fairness, I've been doing this for 18 years, so I would have beaten it in half the time had I stuck to it. Right. But I think there was also, there was so much kind of in the ether that there, there is something doing this to you. It's not you. It's not, it wasn't me. There's something that's floating around. And if you just hold on to this idea that, oh, uh, it's, it's whatever it is, lectins, MSG, saturated mm -hmm. fat, polysaturated fat, sugar, salt, mm -hmm. carbohydrates, whole grains. You know, I, I did, I did hear recently that a buddy was like, you can't eat brown rice anymore. You can only eat coarse rice. And it's like, do you eat brown rice and not feel well? Well, then don't eat brown rice. I mean, that's about it. Did you get a test and they said you're allergic to brown rice? Outside of that, I, I think that looking for the, the causality in a thing is a mistake, that we can control it all. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting, too, with an like evolutionary perspective where you think like, okay, we got sort of two competing hypotheses. One is that we're just supposed to be lean, mean, fat-burning machines and this one food ingredient or this one environmental pollutant, that's what's fucking up our physiology and making us these fat pieces of shit, right? Okay, that's hypothesis one. Hypothesis two is that like 
we evolved largely in a time when starvation was the norm and food was not plentiful. And we've evolved very distinct tastes for high sugar, high fat, and just tasty food with lots of salt and everything else in it. And that now we're so rich, thanks capitalism, that we just buy a lot of the shit we want to eat and fucking eat it because it tastes good. We eat too much, we get fat. Like, you know, one of those hypotheses is way more true than the other. You and I both know which one is more true, but man, one of them just sounds like it's got such a fucking simple, I wish that other one was true. Wouldn't it be fucking amazing, Ethan, if we could just find the fucking thing floating in the water? Like, oh, it turns out fluoride for your fucking teeth is making everyone fat. Yeah. They just stop pumping fluoride in the water. Everyone's lean as fuck, like chiseled. Everyone's fucking Shakira and J-Lo combined. <laughs> you know, they're dancing naked, saying nonsense. It's great. But like, man, that would be sweet, but it's probably just not fucking true. And the harsher truth is that, yeah, we kind of, I don't know what I'm say did this to ourselves, but it's like, you know, there's some instincts here that are, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, it's a tiny tangent, but like, it's like, why do people rob banks? You know, uh, you could have a hypothesis like, well, you know, the social cultural forces and this fucking the Western tradition or Eastern literature or this and that, and man's unity with himself has been castrated by Western metaphysical, this and that's why people could rob banks. But how do you another hypothesis? There's fucking money inside them and people fucking like money. Right. I know it sounds fucking crazy. And then they find out that if they get guns and other people don't have them, they'll just give them that money and they can go away and have money. Uh, right? Same idea with like tasty foods and what are called technically hyper palatable foods right foods that are really really tasty people fucking like eating them and if they don't stop eating them they eat a lot of them they gain weight that's basically modern obesity researchers sort of tip of the spear summary of why we're as a country and as a, a modern world more fat than ever and i tell you what man you seem to have taken to it real well and and and, and understood it and accepted it but for the love of god a lot of people just won't buy it and they're still looking for the fucking fluoride in the water to cure obesity for the past 40 years, I've been searching for that thing, you know, and if somebody had said, I have a pill and I'm going to give you the pill and it's going to block that thing. We haven't figured out what that thing is other than like, there's this one molecule that's in everything and we were going to block that molecule and then you're going to be fine. But that just makes less sense to me because if I go back and think about history, the really wealthy people, not one for one, but like back when everybody was thin and tiny, the fat people were the really wealthy people. Yep. Well, guess what? We're all fucking wealthy now. Yeah, oh, absolutely. The homeless people in America are wealthier materially than a lot of other countries in the world, you know? It's it's just a crazy state where there is no cost, basically. And I know that's extreme. There is very little cost to food in America. And then there are social programs, which which provide food when you don't have that little cost. So sure. it, it is basically, a there's an abundance of calories available to everyone. And it makes more sense to me that we have created this cornucopia of, of available calories. And we just haven't realized that like, oh, we need to be a little bit more in control of what we do with this or not care. 100%. Yeah. hundred percent. Because like, you know, fundamentally that's like maybe one of the greatest things that's ever happened. Can you imagine like talking to fucking someone and like, I don't know, we teleport like George Washington until like the podcast right now. And he's like, Oh my God, what's going on? You know, shut up talking to this mic. Listen, um, 
like ask us about how society, the society you help create is. And he's like, are, are people starving? And be like, nope, the poorest people are fat. And they're like, he'd be like, that's fucking incredible. You guys won. We did it. And be like, right. well, no, it's a serious problem, sir. You just, uh, you're clearly dated. <laughs> you know, we just teleport them right the fuck back. Like, yeah, you know, it's an awesome thing that everyone in the Western world has tons of money and can buy tons of food. Now it's time, I think, and some folks are getting into this. It's maybe time to stop searching for sort of miracle cures for what's causing obesity. Understand what's causing obesity um, is the overeating of highly palatable foods primarily. And uh, just at first bringing people, like bringing that to mass attention, you know, because like, man, I don't know of any real big source of that kind of knowledge like a documentary or a big celebrity or other than you, I guess. Um, There's just not this big push behind like, hey, it's super tasty foods eaten in excess that makes us fat. Like there's there's a guy for keto. There's tons of people for carnivore. I mean, vegans, half of Hollywood's probably fucking vegan, which is, by the way, a great way to do things. It's just not the only way. Um, There just hasn't been that realization at a mass level of people being like, fuck, you know what? Why obesity is high is because there's tons of tasty foods and we just keep fucking buying them. Right. And maybe if we bought fewer of them, like it's interesting too, to the little um, intellectual exercise. Imagine that the year was 1938 in the United States um, or fuck, I picked the fucking depression year, basically 1946. Great. Economy's booming. You have sort of plenty of money, relatively speaking. And you get the fucking munchies hard and you're at home. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Like grocery stores have more or less just basic items, right? Fast food's barely a thing. You got to get in your car and drive real far to go get it. Like, or even like, I don't know, the 1920s, probably a better example. Like, what are you going to do? You have to cook yourself a meal. And listen, I don't know how you cook, but I cook like fucking dog shit. I would make myself something that's so unappealing. I would eat enough of it to fuel myself and squash hunger, not cravings, which is two different concepts. Like cravings is what you want to eat. Hunger is like when you're not hungry anymore, you're not hungry, right? Like you get a craving for dessert even after you're full from pasta. So like if you just eat normal, regular food that you make yourself that isn't like designed by corporations to be as tasty as possible – Man, you're just probably not going to get that out of shape. It's really, you can imagine someone's like, hey, here's this boiled fucking meat and this loaf of bread. Have at it. It's your cheat day. You'd be like, fuck. Right. <laughs> right? But nowadays, we want to fucking, you know, touch our palate a little bit. Oh my God, dude, I can get sushi delivered in a fucking 45 minutes and five different restaurants. Holy crap, it's it's a thing. And at some point you gotta say, hey, maybe I can make better choices. And that's a shitty fucking red pill. It's like, you know, Morpheus gives you the red pill and you're like, all right, we're the fucking robots. He's like, nothing. Like, here's the reality is just exactly what it is. Let me explain some <laughs> right. shit. And you're like, this pill sucks. I want the blue pill too. <laughs> Dude, I would just take both pills, man. I'd be like, I'm sorry, sir. Am I to understand that you're offering me free drugs? He'd be like, Yeah, I guess, but like, boom, just both pills right away. <laughs> Time to get high. <laughs> yes. That's amazing too, because you're right. Because there is no, there is no evil conspiracy. Like I go back to like the, uh, the subsidization of corn and soy and beef and think it's a plot, you know, and I still believe <laughs> that that plays some role in it, but the role sure is people does. were actually starving to death in America and the government went, how do we stop this? Okay. Let's make sure there's enough food. And I think yeah. it just got out of control and there was no, there was no talk of like, Hey, all you people who aren't starving to death, you don't eat, need to eat at the same kind of price point. So like if you were consuming 
one cheeseburger for $5. When we drop it down to $2, you don't need to consume two and a half. For sure. Well, that's like the supersize menu at all the restaurants, right? Like for an extra 25 cents, you can supersize it. Like, right. If you think it's, it's funny too, like, so the subsidies are definitely, I mean, like economists are pretty, as far as I'm aware, economists are pretty in unanimous uh, sort of consensus that, um, you know, if you subsidize anything, you get an overconsumption of it. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty straightforward. The time for food subsidies is like outdated by probably 80 years. Like it's for sure. She doesn't need to be a thing. That being said though, if you instantly remove all food subsidies, it's by no means clear that the price of food is going to radically go up. And the market trend, fundamentally, like what do markets do? Advanced, hyper-competitive markets like we have in the United States. They do everything they possibly can to get the consumer what they want because that's what the consumer pays money for, right? So if there's people holding out fucking literally trillions of dollars right over the course of decades, probably, I don't know how much people spend on food. It's definitely in the billions. It might be in the trillions per year. Um, holding out these wads of cash and being like, we're going to take... We're going to offer to the highest bidder of food that tastes the best and is also the cheapest. Like, man, capitalism is going to fucking find a way to make that happen, subsidies or not. Like, yeah, a cheeseburger might be sort of $5 now. Without subsidies, maybe it would be 6 But then after like 10 years of adjustment, you know, inflation aside, it'd probably go back down to 5 or even go down to 4 You know, like the, the kind of shit that you can get now for value is, incre- is incredible. So – at the end of the day, if people still want super hyper palatable, super tasty foods, like no one's shoving fucking soybeans and corn down your throat. You don't walk into a store and you're like, man, this is so cheap. I've got to buy these potato chips. I can't afford not to buy them. That doesn't make any fucking sense. Like if they were selling pieces of shit for free, would you buy pieces of shit? I hope not. Like, well, I mean, they're, they're there. You know, you can use them for all kinds of things. No, right? Fundamentally, like we still fucking want potato chips. We want them a lot. And as a country, I hate to use terms like this, but on average, we don't give a fuck about how overweight or out of shape we are. And we start giving a fuck about that at least a little bit. And then we start sort of make, just making better choices and better choices, man, just in all of life. And like one of the things I say every now and again when I talk to folks about nutrition is um, I just use the term like try to be an adult about things. Like children want whatever the fuck they want. They don't give a fuck. Consequences, like that part of the brain isn't even developed yet. But adults like have to make some tough choices. Like, do you always want to go to work? I don't always want to go to work. Do you always want to brush your teeth? Because there are a person out there that loves to brush their teeth who's not like, you know, completely insane. Like if someone was like, I love brushing my teeth, they'd be like, you need to be fucking admitted because holy fuck, right. what is wrong with you, right? But you do it because you know that if you don't brush your teeth, they're going to fucking rot and all bad stuff. And people are going to stop talking to you if you have bad breath, so on and so on and so on. So in just the same way, it's tempting to kind of just eat whatever the fuck you want. But at the end of the day, you know, it's on you to make sure that you make the right choices, which might not always feel amazing at the time, but not everything feels amazing at the time. It's literally what being an adult is all about is delaying gratification, doing the right thing versus doing the tempting thing. Yeah. It's tempting to do that. And then it's tempting to pick some object to blame and oh that's so easy and create a team or some kind of a tribe based around the idea that that object is evil or bad or the consumption of that object is evil or bad when it's just if you prefer eating only meat fine eat only meat but i think telling people that it's a healthier way to live than any other way is a little silly 
And if you, yeah, if you don't very silly, you know, if you don't like to kill animals or consume them, that's fine too, and and you can be very healthy doing that. But to say that beyond those parameters, that it's like the nap the the the, the plus ultra kind of like health thing, it's like well, my blood work is pretty damn clean right now. That's really good, man. You know, yeah. Can I ask you how old you are? Forty three. Holy shit. How old are you? Um, don't worry about it, bro. I don't tell things. <laughs> uh, I'm 35. But like, well, so I, I'll tell you this, man. Like, as heavy as you have been, first of all, it's really awesome that you're at a healthy body weight this late in the game, so to speak. And second of all, it's really awesome that your blood work is good. And third of all, like, I, I don't know how you did it. Maybe you could tell me on air. Like, by not staying at 530 or whatever, you dodged like a fucking giant bullet. Because I don't know if you're familiar with the statistics on folks over four, five, and 600 pounds respectively as far as longevity is concerned, but it's like, it's unimaginably bad. No, no, I am aware of all of that. And and to be honest with you, I wasn't even thinking, it wasn't even a health concern necessarily. I mean, that was a kind of a secondary concern, but it was really, you know, I think when I look at um, my long-term motivation, I was with a girl who, in a relationship that I actually really cared about, like the first relationship that I wanted to improve, and there was a whole lot of things that she was interested in doing that I just wasn't really physically capable of doing, like hikes or spending a day at a museum, like those kind of things, I I just couldn't do that. Um, right. And so, I was going to make a really crude sex joke, but I'll just shut up. Yeah. I mean, that seemed to work. It's <laughs> certainly improved dramatically, but, but, sure. but there was that too, but it, that wasn't the, that wasn't the main focus. It was mostly right, like, right, right. she wants to go. I, I remember she was like, come to Paris with me. And I'd been there, but I, I remembered like, Jesus, just on my own, it was a lot of walking. She's going to be walking around all day. And and now when we go, we clock around 10 miles a day. There was no way at 500 plus pounds that I was going to do that. It just was not going to happen. How was flying at that body weight? Brutal. If a, if a studio flew me, uh, they, they would fly me first class, which was uh, about what it's like now to fly coach. Um, Holy shit. Yeah, it was not fun. And I still need a seatbelt extension. And yeah, it was completely miserable. But. So the idea of like, oh, I have this thing. The only way I can improve it right now is by getting healthier and losing weight and being more fit. And so that kind of has just been my long-term motivation. Um, you know, also all those things, I had not considered them things that I wanted for myself and they, and they really were. And so the more I was able to do them, the more I wanted to keep doing them. Um, that's really, that's really awesome. Yeah, that's been the main thing. But I did spend 17 years plus all the years of being a kid where, you know, we would have a whole, like, my mom would go, well, we just consume whole grains now, or we, we don't consume, you know, I went through all those stages because we lived in Los Angeles. I just wasn't really aware of it. it was just suddenly, now all our food is from this little granola hippie store and we're shopping at the bulk bin for stuff. I don't know if that's a thing that everybody's aware of. It was like, 
you know, it was like the first time you saw organics, um, Mm -hmm. 35 years ago. And, uh, so I, I went through all of that where my mom was searching for the, the magical thing that was poisoning me without even really telling me she was doing that. And, and then when I first started dieting and for a lot of years, I too was searching for, I, you know, basically somebody would come to me and say, lectins are bad. And okay, so I don't eat lectins anymore. That's it. Let me read this book about lectins. And, and I would notice no perceivable difference. And so the next time the the new thing would come along, I'd do that. And again, no perceivable difference. As long as I was in a caloric deficit, I was losing weight. And I do think if you have, uh, if your preference leads you away from lectins, do the no lectin diet, you know, and that's fine. But I yeah, think, if you can detect them. Right, exactly. <laughs> what, whatever it is, I think. Any of these diets are fine, but if you fail at it because you've decided that this is the magical diet, that's where it can be a problem. That's where I think diets can be a problem because at the end of the day, there's no magic to it, you know? Yeah. um, It's really fascinating to me that you were essentially having fad diets done to you before you were aware of fad diets. And also, if if I may, can I ask you a little bit about like um, what it was like to have a diet thrust upon you as a kid? Because like I never so much had like I grew up in Russia for the first seven years, so like we just ate as much food as we could because there wasn't a ton of fucking food around. Right. But like, did you like? I don't know. I don't want to ask anything super personal that you don't want to answer. But like, did you feel like your parents were restricting you or other family members? Like, was it was it an understanding that like, well, you were too fat and you had to something was wrong and you had to do something to change it? Or, or I, you know what I mean? Like, was yes. that a ever present thing? Or? When when I was five, my grandparents put me on a diet because I was too fat. Now, when I look at pictures of myself at five, I see a totally normal kid. Um, but I went to visit them and they put me on a diet where it was like, we're going to give you smaller portions. You're not allowed to eat any more than this. And so at that point I started sneaking food. I'm aware of my parents, um, looking for fad diets, but it was done in a different way where it was just like, my mom would discover that the whole family has candida or something like that. (laughs) And so now we're all just going to eat this way. And I would get the feeling that it was really me that was the impetus for this, that if I wasn't um, showing signs of being on my way to being morbidly obese, that we wouldn't be doing that. But so it wasn't vocalized to me by my parents in that way. There was one point where my father said, if you get to be 200 pounds, I'm putting you on a diet. And at 10, I was 200 pounds and I was put on OptiFast. And I actually didn't hate it. I was, I was enjoying it. And I think I did it for like two weeks and was like, Hey, I'm actually losing weight. And then I don't know the intricacies of what happened, but my mom, I think was like, Oh, this is unhealthy for a child. We're not doing this anymore. And so we went off that and we went on, you know, the organic ground Turkey burger diet or whatever it was at the time that, that she discovered you know, but I, I mean, I did the Beverly Hills diet, which is like, I think predominantly uh pineapple. I did, I did every <laughs> diet. 
Um, and but everyone knows pineapple is the secret to weight loss. Right. I think it's like four days of pineapple, and then you get papaya too. Uh, oh my god. Yeah. All I have is my perspective. I, it was just very prevalent. Um, if you're going to do a diet, you got to figure out what food is poisoning you and just get mm-hmm. rid of that. And that was kind of something we followed. And I saw nutritionists and different nutritionists would say, don't eat tur- chicken, eat turkey because chicken is bad oh for your blood type. God. And Are you serious? Yeah. I've, I've been through every version of that. You know, brown rice is bad. White rice is good. You can have this much and, you know, cream of wheat is bad. Oatmeal is good. And all of this. Dude, the thing I'm loving right now is as long as I get my protein, I can do the kind of version of if it fits your macros. Now, I choose to eat what I consider to be clean food, and that is like veggies and whole grains because I'm a little bit scared of ice cream and stuff like that because I was so big and 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 I'm and I'm also a sober person, so I have a history with drugs and it is easier for me to just go like if i if i don't consume that stuff it's okay now that doesn't mean i'm an absolutist there are times where i have that stuff but i do think about it in different ways than like a quote unquote cheat meal sure you know are you familiar with the food palatability reward hypothesis no that's a fucking that's a needy fucking bunch of words right there, man. That makes me sound extra fucking smart. Yeah, that's so PhD <laughs> shit. Ooh, yeah, there's a stamp right there. So um, it basically, uh, I'm going to butcher his name, Stefan Guiné, who's been on the Joe Rogan podcast. Um, and he's a, so he's a super brilliant guy. He's sort of at the forefront of this. And it basically says something like this, that... Food that is super, super tasty, uh, if you are in a caloric deficit, especially, um, or you've lost a lot of weight and you're trying to keep it off and you're in maintenance, food that is super, super tasty, especially in those circumstances, makes you sometimes eat, want to eat more of it. It's essentially the effect can be summed up as like the, you just can't just have one potato chip sort of thing. Right. Because, you know, with most foods, as you eat them, it's a semi-linear thing, like brown rice, like you have a spoonful. You're like, okay, like, do you want even more? You're like, no, I want marginally less than before the spoonful. (laughs) And then you had 10 spoonfuls later. Like if I could pay someone to never see brown rice again, that would be for the best. Right. But with potato chips after one, you're like, fuck, I want more. And that limit of when you don't want any more potato chips is just super fucking high. So there's kind of like a, like a recursive effect there where it's a positive feedback loop. So with your, when you mentioned ice cream and you don't want to fill your mattress with that, food palatability reward hypothesis kind of says like and you know for some people in some situations may very well apply to you if you have a little bit of ice cream you know enough to fit your macros it may just make you want more of it which is a huge deal when we say like you know food's super tasty and they sell it to you because you know you're gonna eat a lot of it buy a lot of it it operates under that mechanism super often where the food is so good you want more and if you eat mostly uh, low-processed or unprocessed foods, fruits, veggies, whole grains, lean meats, healthy fats, and those foods tend to be tasty. They're fine, right? Like, you know, uh, salmon, brown rice, couple apple slices, and broccoli is not fucking poison. And you're not like, Ugh, right? Like, it's fine. It tastes good. 
you reach your limit of eating that kind of food relatively in a, in a alignment with your hunger. So like as soon as you're not hungry, you're like, Bleh. you know, you're not like, man, what I fucking kill for now is just a snack on pieces of salmon. Like, what the fuck? Like, okay. Right. People just don't normally say that sort of thing. But if you have this hyperpalatable food, it can turn into uh, a kind of a positive feedback loop where you eat more and more and more of it. And that's a big deal. So there's nothing wrong with staying away from those kinds of foods at least much of the time, sometimes all the time or, or most of the time, because you know that if you have those foods, it's not like I hear you on the being scared of like, fuck, I'm just going to eat ice cream and I'll fall off a fucking wagon. I'm going to eat 10 gallons of ice cream. I'm just going to be super fucking fat and miserable again. My family's going to leave me. Those thoughts, I totally recognize them. They're all wildly irrational, completely ridiculous thoughts. Right. So, you know, like I've had those thoughts for sure in various other contexts. And, um, you know, that doesn't make any fucking sense. But it does make sense that if you have a cone, like an ice cream cone within your instead of brown rice, you could have two or three more ice cream cones. Or even if you just let your willpower kick in, it's just tough to like have something that makes you want to eat more of something. And then you're all of a sudden like, supposed to use your willpower to not eat it like fuck that it makes your meal uncomfortable someone's like did you enjoy your ice cream like no to be honest i wish i never fucking had any because now i just want more of it like if i could just stick to my usual whole foods i like them enough to eat them uh and then i don't just want to eat them anymore uh after that and and that's super great so there is absolutely like some people say like well you should be having a little bit of a cookie here and there a little bit of ice cream if that's up your alley and it doesn't make you want more of it then that's totally fine. But if you have experimented with this and you know that like one cookie, if it doesn't lead to 80 more cookies, makes you feel like you want 80 more cookies, maybe you're just better off eating fewer fucking cookies and there's not a damn thing wrong with that. Yeah, this is a this is a great scientific hypothesis that completely mirrors what I've been trying to do, which is the the less I can be entertained by my my by my food and and the more I can truly consider food a, a source of fuel with a functional component to it, the better I am, the, the safer I am, the more successful I am with this goal. And, and that's a beautiful hypothesis, which I can totally say is true for me. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a real kicker. And, you know, people will fall on various parts of the spectrum there. where like some people, and I'm sure you know, people like this, they just don't have that uh, response to foods and they just their baseline levels of hunger and cravings are so low or they filled so fast. It's just not an issue for them. Like some people will have like half a plate of brownies and you're like, oh my God, here we fucking go, right? This is the beginning of a binge. And they'll be like, oh my God, I can't eat anymore. And then they straight up won't eat for 16 fucking hours. And you're like, right. what the fuck, right? How is that possible? Some other people will have half a brownie after lunch and be like, oh, that's good. I love it. And you're like, you don't want more brownie? And they're like, wow, I'm full. And you're like, okay. But other people, and there's everyone in between. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have people that if they sniff brownies, they're straight up stabbing a motherfucker in the throat for them shits. They're going to eat as many as possible until the police put them down yeah. you know, in front of the brownie machine. And if you know you're more like one of those people than the other, you can choose your foods a bit more wisely. And I think there's... Sort of in the if it fits your macros movement, sometimes there's a sort of false notion of like balance means that you eat dessert and you shy away from it. 
you should definitely not shy away from it out of fear, not of being like, it's bad. Brownies are bad. They're poison. They're the fucking MSG that we've been looking for. That's not true. But if you just know that if once you have a brownie or whatever, that, you know, you're just going to be, there are a lot of cravings you don't want to deal with, or you're going to falter and start eating your own fingers or whatever, then maybe just don't eat so many brownies. And recognizing that I think was a huge leap for the scientific community that probably happened about five or 10 years ago. It's filtering down a little bit into everyday practice, but hey, for the love of God, not enough, I guess, because Hollywood sure as hell hasn't caught on to it. No, we are still out here chasing lectins and gluten <laughs> and polysaturated fat or mono, whatever this bad saturated fat is. We're chasing all these things. We're chasing egg yolks. I'm sure they're going to be bad again. By the way, I didn't say this, but I wanted to. I wonder if this carnivore movement, and I know it was kind of percolating prior to this movie but i wonder if this is just a direct fu to the netflix documentary game changers i wonder if they were like if a, a bunch of people were just like we'll show you all we're gonna eat is meat yeah that would be hilarious you know what if there was another documentary that came out before there's basically a documentary a year now the food documentary what the fuck was it called remember that shit it was called what the health yes yes I mean, like, I'm pretty sure that was a vegan documentary too, right? Um, I'm quite certain of it. They and haven't done the meat documentary. There hasn't been, like, the guy. There hasn't been a, a meat documentary yet. But I think that What the Health was, like, a year ago. And I think the carnivore diet really, like, sort of started ballooning after that. Right. I, I, I One big boost to the carnivore diet, uh, my understanding, is um, Jordan Peterson. Are you familiar with who that is? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, he started doing it, and every time that he is, like, asked about it, he's like, first of all, I'm not a nutritionist, so I don't know. Second of all, it, like, worked for my daughter and for me because we have some weird autoimmune thing, and it's not something I'd recommend to anyone else because it's miserable and it makes traveling, like, awful and I hate it. Right. <laughs> and then, of course, like, since he is, like, basically a celebrity, a bunch of people don't hear that last part, and they're like, yeah, I'm carnivore gonna diet. Too. Yeah. It's going to make me more moral or whatever Jordan Peterson says. And then all of a sudden, you got like tons of people doing it. And uh, I mean, that's how fads sort of operate. But I, I'll tell you what, man, to your point, uh, extremist documentaries don't help any case. Right. Like an extremist vegan documentary does probably two things. One, it makes a bunch of people vegan for the wrong fucking reasons, like thinking that's going to save their health or save the planet where it's really just a nice thing to do for animals, which has its own, you know, tons of value to it. But, you know, people think like, oh, I'm going to go vegan. I'm just going to be in super fucking great shape, which is bullshit. And then they fail at another fat diet. And then what it does also is it pushes people in the other direction reflexively. Like you say, with the carnivore thing, it's like a giant fuck you to vegans. And um, all I want to see, Ethan, out of this whole thing, this I'm telling you, here's my pitch fucking dating show where we we set up people on a dinner date who have mutually not different antagonistic diets yes. motherfuckers are straight hate each other like carnivore and vegan is the first and i guess only episode but that's the only episode i want to see god damn it i want to see it too god that would be so good just the and somehow first date with the okay now here's where the hollywood shit comes in the menu is exclusively things that don't belong to either diet. So it's animal food, but not meat. It's like some kind of processed bullshit that's neither raw meat or whatever fucking carnivores eat, nor is it vegan. Right. Oh my God, the hilarity ensues. <laughs> yes, Amazing. Neither one of them can eat, and they have to eat there. 
must eat. Otherwise, they lose a thousand dollars. I don't know. Or like Japanese game show, they lose their lives. This would be amazing. I'm gonna go pitch this show. If we get the show together, you're a producer. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Dr. Israel, thank you so much for joining us. I hope to talk to you again in the future. This was fantastic. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for submitting questions to AmericanGlutton.net. Rich says, food is an addiction for me, and I never seem to stick to a routine for more than a month without falling off the wagon. How did you get yourself over that mental hurdle and the addiction to food and finally make the commitment to stay healthy? That's a great question, Rich. Thank you. I found that any path I start down that I, that I go off of becomes an, a, an incredibly hard path to continue down. So I got really honest with myself and I figured out what I was really capable of doing. And I tried to build in, I wouldn't call them breaks, but I would say deviations that I would consider still a part of the path. So I'm not, I'm not making an agreement with myself to do something and then breaking that agreement with myself. I'm being honest about what my capabilities are, building into it maybe days or meals that don't or wouldn't necessarily conform to the diet I'm doing. And within those new boundaries, I do not deviate. So I would say set realistic barriers for yourself and then do not break them. But you have to be totally honest with what you're capable of doing. That's my suggestion for you, Rich. Thanks for writing into AmericanGlutton.net. If you have questions you'd like me to answer on the podcast, you can submit them to AmericanGlutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee, and as always, joined by my chaperone, Paige Dorian. Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.